While the phrase Amor Fati was coined by Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, the idea has been around for a lot longer, as a love of fate was also included in many Stoic texts. In this video, we take a look at Amor Fati and discuss it from multiple perspectives. But before we do so, if you're interested in psychology and philosophy, then be sure to join the Discord server. That's also where the request for this video came from. Now, while we could understand Amor Fati as an inspirational catchphrase that you'd probably see on an Instagram post, it actually goes significantly deeper. For Friedrich Nietzsche, Amor Fati is neither a catchphrase nor a merely philosophical idea that one could think about, but rather it is a principle to live by, one of the highest principles to live by. But to understand it, we first need to take a step back and look at nihilism. Many people associate Nietzsche with nihilism, a philosophy of meaninglessness. In essence, Nietzsche's nihilism assumes that there is no right or wrong, no absolutes, no universals, and as a result, no real meaning or even a denial of life. In that way, nihilism is a direct contradiction to Amor Fati. While Nietzsche is closely intertwined with nihilism, he actually was not a proponent of nihilism. In fact, many of his ideas are attempts to deal with and conquer nihilism. In that way, Amor Fati saying yes to life, saying yes to one's fate and not wanting it to be different, does not originate from a wanting a better life. Instead, it stems from a direct fight against meaninglessness. Since Amor Fati isn't merely a little idea, but a way of living, it is also easily misunderstood. For example, one could readily conclude that when Nietzsche says we should love life and not want anything to be different, that we should also love crimes, slavery, murder and any form of an apocalypse that you could think of. However, that's not the case. Think for example about a loving mother. A loving mother provides unconditional support to the child. She embraces the child for what it is. She might get upset if the child misbehaves. She might get angry if the child provokes her. She might even be disappointed at times. But at the end, the overarching love prevails. She does not limit her love to only the positive aspects. She does not cut her love off if there is naughty behavior. She does not try to change her child, but instead provides a surrounding so that the child may fully develop in its own and best way. Maybe she does not agree with all of its choices, maybe she does not like the friends, the selected significant other or even the chosen career. Yet she would neither dare nor wish to change them, because if these things were different, then in the end it wouldn't be her child anymore, it would be someone else. True love, being it from parent to child, from child to parent or from partner to partner, is not defined by appreciating the good times, but rather by loving someone despite the things that one may not like. And in a similar fashion, we should develop a love for life, a love for fate despite the brutish and cruel aspects of it. We don't need to love every aspect of life and fate, but love life and fate as a whole. Just like there are some ingredients that you may not like, except in that one dish that is so delicious. The sum is more than the parts. Individual notes mean little to nothing, but string them together into a melody, 
and all of a sudden they evoke a cocktail of emotions. Loving in a holistic perspective does not mean to love every aspect, but to love, in our case, fate and life as something that is more than its components. One of Nietzsche's most famous statements, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him, is also nihilistic in nature, as it is a denial of the meaning that religion once provided. Again, keep in mind that this is not a celebratory statement by Nietzsche, but rather part of the realization that finding meaning is going to be tough if there is no God around any longer. More importantly, this illustrates the importance of religion when it comes to Amor Fati, which is, religion does not play a role at all or even prevents us from truly loving life and fate. The love of fate could be easily morphed into a religious statement. But that is probably not what Nietzsche had in mind. Amor Fati is about the here and now, whereas religious scriptures, especially Christianity, are frequently about the eternal life. In that way, religions provide meaning by promising a better future in heaven, when in reality they cover up the truly important current moment. Now, one could easily say that the current moment is so precious because it is fleeting, but according to Nietzsche, there's the concept of eternal recurrence, which basically means all events reoccur ad infinitum. Now, things repeating themselves endlessly might be better explained when we take a look at another existentialist thinker, Albert Camus. Just like Nietzsche, Camus can be seen as an existentialist thinker and he is most famous for his book The Myth of Sisyphus, which he even more famously starts with there's but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Immediately, we recognize that we are once again on the verge of meaninglessness. One of Camus' core concepts is the absurd. The absurd is the conflict that we experience when we look for an explanation or meaning and harshly realize that we can't find it. We humans are curious and want answers. Realizing that there might not be an answer may not only be paradox, but one of the greatest upsets that we can experience. Looking at the history of mankind, we already experienced quite a few upsets, like realizing that Earth is not the center of the universe, or that humans aren't made by a higher deity, but seemingly evolved through evolution. We want to understand the world and our own purpose, yet our continuous thirst for understanding seems to push us further and further away from discovering the purpose of humanity. The more we search, the more we learn that we seem to be rather insignificant. The absurd reaches its pinnacle in Sisyphus. Sisyphus is a Greek mythology figure. In short, he cheated death multiple times and eventually got punished by the gods. His punishment is to roll a heavy boulder up a hill, just to see it tumble down again. He then has to bring the boulder back up. He invests time, energy and effort into bringing the stone up, but in this vicious cycle he sees no success. The cycle continues indefinitely. This can be seen as a punishment from multiple angles. Seeing how you worked so hard to achieve a goal, just to see it roll back down all the way to the starting line. 
Another form of punishment is simply repeating the same action indefinitely without any reward. And while our lives might seem a little more interesting than moving a boulder, there still remain many similarities. Often we invest time and energy, but get nothing in return. All our actions are in the end futile, because we're going to die anyways. And even if we tell ourselves that we have an impact, then from a bigger picture perspective, it's marginal at best. Our lives are slightly more complex than Sisyphus' punishment, but still equally as absurd and meaningless. The only difference is that with Sisyphus there's not that much room for interpretation. We can't really web an ideal story that makes his miserable existence seem any less miserable and meaningless. Or can we? Obviously we can. That's also why Camus ends his book stating that one must imagine Sisyphus happy. But how do we get from such a grim fate to believing him to be happy? The essence of making that switch is asking how can we counteract punishment. The simple answer would be to not see it as punishment. If the intention of the gods is to hurt Sisyphus by punishing him, then Sisyphus has the power to say, I don't see it as punishment, but I rather enjoy it. Similarly, sending someone to jail who likes it there misses the point. But as stoic and tranquil as it may seem, this interpretation can actually stem from an incredibly emotional standpoint. In fact, if Sisyphus tries to rationalize his way into liking the so to speak punishment, then he will probably fail at it. Because quite frequently our emotions are stronger than our rational faculty. The step towards loving one's fate, the step by Sisyphus to love his fate, is one of defiance. The idea to look the punishment and the punisher in the eye and openly tell him to go F himself. This is not done by enduring through the punishment. It's not done by accepting the punishment. It's done by saying, this is no punishment for me since I fully embrace it. Amor Fati, the love of fate, is an act against the absurd. From that angle, Amor Fati is not a meditative state that only monks achieve, but it is fueled by the strong and rebellious nature that we have when we experience an injustice. The injustice that is our life. Camus' original question whether we should commit suicide is answered by a definite no. Suicide would not merely be accepting the misery that we've been dealt, but rather be a loss on our side. Suicide is the victory of the absurd. It defeated us and put us into our grave at an early point. On the other hand, laughing at the misery and the absurdity of life, fully enjoying it and appreciating every minute of it, is our way of crushing the absurd. In that way, Amor Fati is a rebellious response to a meaningless life. The Stoics did not coin the term Amor Fati, but the concept of loving one's fate is definitely found in the writings of multiple Stoic philosophers, like for example Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius. The Stoics valued objectivity and rational thinking very highly. In fact, they valued it so highly that according to the Stoics, everything is controlled by a higher form of rationality. From our modern perspective, it seems a little paradox to value rationality so highly and then transform that rational thinking into a higher deity. Nowadays, gods, religions and rationality don't always align, but back then they surely did. 
If everything is controlled by the superior rationality, then Amor Fati would be the logical consequence. Everything has its logical purpose, even if we don't see it. If everything happens for a reason, and we highly value rationality, then the only rational thing to do is to love everything that happens. Now, the argument is a little circular, and a higher power might not be the most appealing form of arguing in our century. However, the Stoics also had another form of arguing for a love of fate, and that is the dichotomy of control. According to the Stoics, there are some things that are within our control, mainly our own actions and thoughts, even if we frequently fail at those too, and then at and then there are the things that are not in our control. Basically, everything that is outside from ourselves, being it the behavior and thoughts of other people, the weather, time, or, well, anything in between. The Stoics say we should only focus on the things that we are in control of, and not on the things that we are not in control of. From a rational perspective, it makes little sense to hate something that we cannot control, because in the end we will be angry all the time and we can't do anything against it. On the other hand, if we embrace life and our fate fully, then we take this lack of control and turn it into a positive aspect, which seems to be the logical thing to do. A love of fate is surrendering our obsessive urge to control everything in life and instead enjoy the lot that we've been given. Both emotional control and the dichotomy of control are quintessential to Stoicism, and Amor Fati seems to be the rational consequence of combining the two. It's about recognizing that we are not in control and not only not getting angry, but rather appreciating life for every moment that we are given. And the fact that we are given every moment of our lives only gives more weight to Amor Fati. Stoics like Epictetus believed that everything is given to us for just a brief period. We don't really own it, we just borrow it. If you ever borrowed anything, you know how meticulously you took care of it, compared to items that you consider your own possessions. If time is only given to us and if life could end at any moment, then it only makes sense to enjoy the time and the current moment that we've been given, that we've been gifted. In some, Amor Fati is the conclusion of many Stoic ideas, even if the phrase itself was coined much later by Nietzsche. From a practical standpoint, one may ask how to actually embrace Amor Fati as a way of living, as a higher principle and not merely as a motivational quote found on Instagram. And the answer is, Amor Fati is surprisingly difficult. If we look at Nietzsche and Camus, but also at the Stoics, then paradoxically, it becomes quite evident that Amor Fati is not a result of having a jolly good time that one enjoys so much already. Instead, both Camus and Nietzsche's Amor Fati are the consequence of the agonizing realization that life as we know it might be utterly meaningless Amor Fati, the love of life and fate, is a tree that has its root in the absurdity, the hollowness and the pointless existence that is our life. And as sad as it may seem, arriving at that realization alone is quite difficult. Because from a psychological standpoint, 
we really have the urge to look for an explanation. The absurdity and meaninglessness of life seems easy enough to understand, but if you think that you understood it after hearing or reading a little bit about it, then you probably just have a superficial understanding of it. You just scratch the surface. Realizing the futility of life requires either long, difficult personal inquiry or direct, undeniable experience of the absurdity of life. The first is a tedious road that contradicts our urge to find meaning. Thus, we will find many reasons to not pursue it. The other might be painful as it requires us to hit rock bottom and then make the right interpretations about it. Either way, our fati is not easy to come by. Many people might think that they developed a love of fate, but that love tends to pass away if their life turns from colorful and happy to miserable and grim. It is easy to love fate if one is currently having a good or at least decent life. But loving fate when everything is going downhill is a different story. And that's also why Amor Fati in its full form tends to start with realizing the absurdity of life. If one can get across the absurdity and meaninglessness, then the rest could be quite simple. But mustering up the courage to truly, to truly embrace the absurdity is everything except simple. Lastly, there are two more ideas with regards to Amor Fati that I want to share with you. The first is whether Amor Fati in itself is a lie and merely an inevitable coping mechanism. Nietzsche's works are defined by the fight against nihilism, the fight against meaninglessness. But what if Amor Fati is simply the last resort, the last way out, the last desperate attempt to remain in control? If life is absurd and meaningless, and if we have little to no influence, then Amor Fati could be seen as holding on to something that we never had to begin with. Control. In a way, Amor Fati might be the final and most comprehensive lie and illusion that we create. If we humans have the need for control, the need to find meaning and the urge to find explanations, then Amor Fati is the last little bit where we can make an at least seemingly impactful decision. If we realize that everything is meaningless, then all our decisions might not seem to matter. But if we then make the decision to like, yes, to even love life and fate, then we, then we reclaim the tiny bit of control and meaning. In that way, Amor Fati could be seen as a coping mechanism in which we tell ourselves that we love life simply because it provides the illusion of choice between loving and hating it. By telling ourselves that we love life and fate, we create a sense of control. But the bitter reality that often gets lost in philosophical thought might be that our oh-so-animalistic and beastly body simply has the desire to stay alive, even if everything seems absurd. And that part of our brain that desperately clings to life will find a way to love life. Most criminals find justifications for why they did what they did. And quite similarly, we will usually find reasons to stay alive. And if the very last option is to tell ourselves that we love the utter craziness of life, then we will do exactly that. So even the last choice that we might have might not be truly ours, since it could be not only biased, but overruled by our biological desire to live. On the other hand, there's another perspective that we can take, a little more optimistic. We already discussed that our thirst for knowledge and understanding directly contradicts our urge to have meaning. 
wanting to understand everything led to realizing that Earth is not the center of the universe, that man is not made by God and ultimately that life might be utterly meaningless because we're simple, simply incapable of finding that higher purpose. The only thing that we can still cling to is life itself. In turn, and paradox as it seems, we create meaning out of thin air. If there's nothing else left besides our existence, besides our life, then the meaning must be exactly this, life itself. Life with its meaninglessness and absurdity might not serve a higher purpose, but rather exist for its own sake. In that way, Amor Fati replaces God, religion and all other divine or non-divine reasons to live. Life and fate, with all its absurdities, transforms from a process in which we search for meaning to the meaning itself. Thanks for listening and a huge shout out to Eli Z, David Ross, Robert Kempf, Gerald Jones II and Kevin for supporting me on Patreon. I truly appreciate it.